Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, welcome to Lost in Redonda. Today, Tom and I are going to talk about one of my backlist recommendations for him. It's a novel by the author Edno O'Brien called House of Splendid Isolation. Edno O'Brien is an Irish author who's lived most of her adult life in England. Um, she's quite old, I guess I'll just have to say that. I think she's 90 or something close to that. She's published so many books. She's um, she's quite a phenomenon. Uh, if you've not read her before, I would also highly recommend um, her trilogy, The Country Girls, which I think is every bit as good, if not better, than the Elena Ferrante uh, books, uh, My Brilliant Friend, etc., because it, um, it kind of talks about uh, two girls that are friends in childhood and how that friendship develops over the course of their lives. But today we're here to talk about House of Splendid Isolation. So, Tom, tell us what you thought. Um, this might become a bit of a recurring theme in our conversations, Lori, but once again, I'm quite annoyed I haven't read this book before, uh, much like with Marlon James. Uh, I, I've, I've known of Edna, I mean, much like with Marlon James, I've known of Edna O'Brien, Um I think I received, I think that someone brought out her collected uh, stories a couple years ago. Um, and I got that as a gift, but hadn't really dipped into it. Uh, so I was quite pleased when I saw this on the list um, as another reason to to dig into someone I hadn't, hadn't done yet. Um, this is an outstanding novel. Uh, it, its range is really incredible. The There's almost a cacophony of voices taking place here, just absolutely creating this intricate, complicated, um, desperate social situation. It jumps back and forth through time in just really gorgeous ways. It's, it's stunning. Um, the writing is spectacular. It's the kind, I mean, it's the, really the kind of prose that no matter no matter how quickly you want to get through it, and there are moments where the action starts to really kick in and you are desperate to learn what is the next turn, what is going to happen next, uh, her writing demands that you take your time with it. That you, There's something about the way she writes sentences that you can't force your way through, or at least I couldn't find a, find a way to do that even when I was, you know. Again, eager, eager, or maybe a little afraid to find out what what exactly was about to occur, um, and I just really, I, I just really appreciate writers who have that kind of control um, in their writing. Not not just amazing plotting, but on a sentence level, a, an understanding of how how to control the pace of the narrative. And I, I don't know. I, I I don't think that she necessarily is doing too many too, too many pyrotechnics in the writing. It's just more a really strong structural understanding is probably the best way I can put it. But yeah, I don't think it feels experimental really no. in any way, but I think, and I'm probably going to, um, 
say this way too often over the course of episodes because it's something that really attracts me. And, and so that's the kind of books I recommend. But I think that there's something Faulknerian about the language, particularly mm. when it comes to um, Josie's part of the story. Um, and so maybe we should tell folks a little bit of like what the premise of the of the novel is. Sure. Um, so it's taking place in Ireland. Um, I mentioned this to you in email. Um, I, I'm, was, I was actually struggling a little bit to place the exact time frames because it does take place in, in two different periods. Um, Josie as an old woman, um, I believe in her 80s at this point or thereabouts. Um, also, when she was first married and a little bit of a ways into her marriage, um, some 60 odd years before. Uh, but it's taking place in um, the countryside in Ireland uh, in the later period, I would hazard what, late 80s, early 90s Ireland, thereabouts. Um, and a member of the IRA has escaped from a police van that take him into custody and is on the run. Um, and he's well known for constantly escaping and being especially violent, um, although that's probably a weird way of putting it when you're describing um, someone that's participating in the troubles at this time, um, especially violent. Everyone was extremely violent. Um, so he's on the run and he eventually happens upon, or as it turns out, very specifically went to Josie's house. Um, she has just been returned from a nursing home um, where she was for a bit with pneumonia. Um, the house is dilapidated, which is brought into really stark relief when Josie thinks back to her first arrival there, when she got married. It's this gorgeous, massive, incredibly um, isolated house in an already incredibly isolated countryside. Um, she details her really failed, troubled marriage. Um, and But but O'Brien does such smart things there. She gives like such an incredibly, inter like builds up to all the fault lines in the marriage in that first recollection and how her husband eventually dies um, somewhat, um, somewhat young. But then there's another flashback later on that fills in even more of the gaps and actually expands how long they were together. Um, it's I mean, Lori, it's really masterful, like how, how she constructs this. Um, but back to the narrative. So, she happens, and the, the man's name is Frank, uh, Frank McGreevy, and um, over the course of a few days uh, spent together in this house, Frank and Josie start to, I wouldn't say necessarily understand one another, but they seem to be reaching towards something in the other um, as it progresses. Uh, and of course, Frank is being hunted, is um, being watched, and that's kind of in the present day where the action starts to take off after they've spent about five days alone in the house together, the outside world begins to catch up. And from there it gets quite, quite dangerous, quite fast. Well, and it's not that she invites McGreevy in. No. Um, the, the, the section of the book where he kind of comes and almost takes her hostage in her own home mm -hmm. is called captivity. But speaking, I'm glad, I'm so glad you brought up the house and um, I'm such a sucker for, um, for homes kind of um, being a character in a book and then kind of their 
um, their decrepitude and their rottingness kind of being a reflection of what's happening to the people. Mm -hmm. Um, I can think of a number of books like that, that I love. Bundenbrooks by Thomas Mann is one. Chronicle of the Murdered House, which won the best translated book award, um, I think in 2016, um, is another. Absalom, Absalom, Faulkner again. Mm -hmm. But um, I wanted to just read, if I could, um, the first two sentences of the book. Um, History is everywhere. It seeps into the soil, the subsoil, like rain or hail or snow or blood. A house remembers. And I think that's just, um, you know, there's there's something, I think, in all of her novels that kind of gets to this historical um, inherited memory mm-hmm. uh, idea and the fact that place is such a um, repository of the history of the place. And you really can't escape that. And you mentioned the the scene where she has just married James, um, who has inherited this home and lives there with his brother Mick. Um, we can say a few words about Mick as well. Oh my but, goodness! Um, but when she arrives at this house, you know, and she sees it and how beautiful and opulent and that's green all around it. And she says, any girl would have given her eye teeth to marry into it. And she does, but then she ends up having this pretty miserable marriage. Yeah, Josie's also an interesting character in that I feel like she's almost written, there's a way in which she could have been the protagonist of about 10 other different kinds of novels. I mean, this period she has very much, there's not really elements of the Gothic, but something more about like, you know, the country life and, and life, you know, in that way. Um, she was briefly, uh, the, the character lived in the United States in Brooklyn for a bit working as a maid. And so you have elements of the immigrant story there that could be told as well. And we get a brief, a couple brief snapshots uh, of her life in the United States. Um, I mean, she is such a rich and, and fascinating character um, in that way. And in some ways become, I, I mean, as you're talking about the house, she becomes a part of the house. I mean, it's it ages with her. She knows it. There's a scene um, where after Frank has taken over the house, um, she happens upon him and he's about to turn on a light and she stops him because she knows that there's mildew and mushrooms growing right by that light switch. And if he flips it, he's going to electrocute himself. And she has... In a way, that's one of the first moments where she's wondering what she's doing because she could have been done with him right then and there. He could be gone. Um, but she chooses to save him instead. But yeah, that that movement of this house that was immaculate, that had um, that had a house girl, that had a houseboy, that, you know, stables, all these things, and that it's now become taken over in a way by by the land that surrounds it, that by the land that it, it almost ruled over previously. Um, but there is, I think, a real strong Gothic element to the novel, too. I mean, you know, people talk all the time about the curse and the curse that was on her husband, James' family, and the curse that's on the house. And um, James and Mick's parents, you know, died when they were just uh, children. And um, 
so a lot of the characters in the town, you know, that have known the history of the family tell Josie about the curse and, and James, her husband in his drunken fits. And he almost, you know, fairly, well, the the passage of time is a little confusing in the book, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, but at one point he, um, before she sends him to a monastery, he's like so drunk and he's having delirium tremens and, you know, he stumbles around and, and rapes her and, you know, just talks about, you know, the curse of the house and the ghosts. And, um, so I, I do think there's, there's a real strong Gothic element to it. Well, and as you're reading the opening portion, I'd actually, I mean, I only just read it, but I kind of glossed over the fact that the opening section of the novel is called The Child. And The Child is also the closing section of the novel. But I mean, I think it's fair to say this is the child that she never had. But the child that she never had is narrating this place and then is once again narrating the place at the end. Um so yeah, this haunting, this this cursedness uh, of the of the area is, I mean, it's something that you could perhaps pull if you wanted to, and I don't, I don't know that we want to on, on this podcast, but a little bit of the cursedness of of the society at the time. Um, there's a conversation between uh, two uh, members of the guard uh, towards the end of the novel where. Um, it's described as like the North is described as full blown war up there. Um, or let me look it up. I think it's page 200 in my edition. Um, I try to make a mental note of exactly where that was. Yeah. It's open warfare up there and it's half open warfare down here, but that would have been, but that was true even in Josie's youth with James. Um, that is in fact how James died. Uh, the houseboy gets, caught up or joins up with the IRA and is um, um, watching an arms dump um, and James decides to help him and makes his way to it. But the police know, and James is half drunk as he often was at that time, uh, shots are fired and that's how James dies. So there is the, the curse in some ways could be applied to what is tearing apart the country and altering it on like altering the society on a very, profound level um, over the course of Josie's life. There's also this element, at least early on in the book, um, that Josie's almost, as as a, a, a young wife, a new wife, um, seen as like a succubus by, mm-hmm. by James and Mick, the brother, because she, um, she kind of um, is the wedge that that breaks this very strong bond that they've had, at least insofar as um, she makes James tell Mick he's got to go. Um, right. Well, there is a real peculiarity to that relationship between James and Mick. I mean, you get this sense from, you get the sense from how James is portrayed and how he's thinking of Josie as he's bringing her home after they're married and how, how they became married. I mean, basically, um, Josie, after coming back from the United States, uh, is working in her uncle's bar, um, which happens to be in the town nearest to this house, uh, this land. James is there a lot playing cards and drinking and catches, she catches his eye. He somewhat catches her just, I think in some ways, because she knows who he is and what he has. Um, and the, the courtship barely exists. Like it, they just basically, he basically proposes, they get married. She moves in. Um, 
And I get the feeling that up to that point, other than what staff they had, James and Mick were ha- more than half wild. I mean, they spent their time, even as you know, as adults, just sort of roaming the land, doing what they wanted, um, raising horses, fishing, rowing a boat. Like it's a weird sort of, I don't know, almost like a landed gentry sort of lifestyle, but but not quite at the same time. Um, and also just very little other social contact. Um, there's a but, very sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, um, but but James is kind of a sophisticated fella at first. Like he has a neat appearance. Um, he cares about what glass he uses to pour mm. his fine whiskey. He's kind of a little bit of a landed gentry dandy um, for a while, even though he and his brother can be kind of wild. But you get the sense that over time, um, and, and perhaps even pretty quickly after the marriage, he just kind of um, falls apart and becomes this this slothful drunk that um, is really just acts like a total brute to her. And it makes me kind of curious about whether that was something that intentionally Mick was doing, trying to kind of because you get the sense that there's this jealousy that Mick has that, you know, yes. now there's the wife and now my, my best friend and brother is like no longer my close buddy. Well, there, but there were, I think it was more than just a jealousy though, in that like in their first, their first night all in the house together, there's this very strange, almost sexual tension um, coming off of Mick and it's not explicitly stated, but it almost feels like Mick is hopeful that he also got married here that this that is now, share her that exactly i mean and that that i think i mean so yes i think she's a i think you're you're absolutely correct in that she's a wedge and that she tells james that mick has to go eventually because of their shenanigans because of just sort of the general weirdness of the situation but um she's also a wedge in that i think this is one of the first times they stop sharing um in, in their life together um which is yeah i it also kind of cuts into that you know brother versus brother theme that you know sort of pervades the book with the the tension with with the IRA and and the black and tans and the guard and everyone just sort of being at everyone else's throats on a certain level. So when we get to McGreevy, who's kind of um, kind of hold himself up in Josie's house and kind of, you know, against her will, not at her invitation, but there does develop this close relationship with them. And how would you describe that? Is it kind of like Stockholm syndrome? I don't know if it's as far. I mean, certainly, and and this is even brought up later by, um, a guard member who interviews Josie of her being lonely and suddenly having companionship, having someone else to talk to someone to share her time in this house with. Um, But it also seems that Josie wasn't exactly, she doesn't like the violence or the bloodshed, but it doesn't seem that she's entirely against the the IRA or the Republican movement. Um, and it's made clear throughout the novel that 
almost everyone is implicated in to, to, to some degree that there are feelings of understanding or, you know, understanding and horror revulsion and attraction to, to that cause. And also specifically when it comes to McGreevy, um, he becomes in escaping, uh, um, escaping from this prison van, he becomes this sort of mythic figure. He's this boogeyman that's scaring the hell out of everyone across the country. It sounds like, um, Folks' kids are complaining of nightmares. Um, people are, you know, but but at the same time, they're comparing him to uh, Cúchulainn, one of the the great um, heroes uh, of Irish legend. So I mean, there's this this really, I, I think in some ways Josie is embodying that too. She sees him not as this, you know, she sees the man. Um, she's afraid of him in many respects, but at the same time, she's kind of interested in wants to talk and understand more so maybe it is stockholm syndrome maybe it is just that, that she is that she is lonely um it's also certainly the case that josie's attractions to men um were mostly men that are in some way removed or, or unavailable um she had a incredibly emotional almost physical relationship with a young priest not long into her marriage when she was in um the u.s she went out on a walking date with a married man um it seems that the inaccessibility this sort of taboo um at least as it's presented to us those were the men that she was interested in or interested in engaging with and you know exploring aspects of herself with and certainly mcgreevy represents that too i would think should we talk uh, just briefly about the um, the discredited cop that we're introduced to early on, and his yes. and his family? Um, do you think that fits well with the book in terms of like the narrative? Because we get this like page and a half prologue, the first two sentences of which I've read, called "The Child," and then the first thing we hear about is you know this family scene where the, the cop comes home and he's talking to his wife. Um, it's, it's called the present. So it's in the present day, but you know, about the fact that he's not getting a promotion and it's because he made a mistake and, you know, thought that the wrong person, um, or accused the wrong person of a, of a crime. And then, so we, we hear about them, him and his situation before we even really get into Josie. Right. Um, I think this is also just, I think this is also O'Brien really kind of establishing the landscape in a way like that. There is this wildness. There is this house that is off on its own, you know, barely near anything else. Um, but then you also have, you know, something, you know, modern life. You have what looks like a suburban, a suburban household, um, dashed dreams, not being able to move up in the world. I mean, it, it, it very much sounds and reads like uh, a novel from, you know, in that respect, a story from the mid-century or even now, you know, like just not being able to achieve what you want. And Rory, the the officer who's introduced there, um, his section at that point ends with him thinking back to his glory days as an athlete. And so you get this, uh, this image of, uh, of someone who maybe peaked at 17 or 18 and life has just been a series of slow disappointments since, um, which, but again, within a very different 
setting from this wild landscape full of, you know, hauntings of a sort um, that is teeming with life. Um, yeah, she's, O'Brien's really good, eh? Like, she's, uh, she's, she's quite, quite a good novelist. Um, but and, and Rory appears later. I mean, he is a key part of the the hunt for McGreevy that takes up um, what's probably about the last third of the novel, I'd say, yeah. last quarter, um, where the the guard starts to close in, and a lot. I mean, it it almost has the feeling of a um, a parlor scene in a way, right? Where everyone is addressed, every every character who's available in the present that's been in any way a part of this story um, makes an appearance, has something, has some sort of a, a decisive, not entirely decisive, but a bit of a conclusion to their part of this story um, as it progresses towards towards its what feels like, I guess, looking back on it, uh, a bit of an inevitable conclusion. Um, yeah. I, 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 Rory's an interesting one. Um, I mean, all the guard. What's and I, I think it's really something. I I'm not an expert by any means on Irish society or the troubles, any of that. Um, I come from a family that is extremely Irish, as my last name might suggest. Um, so, I mean, I, I have a little bit of a, I guess, a passing cultural awareness of it. Um, this book came out in 94. The Good Friday Accords doesn't, don't happen until 98. Some of the worst violence is behind, but it's still ongoing. And I think, if I remember correctly, 94 was a period when, um, actually, it was probably earlier than 94, because 94 is probably the paperback edition, copyright date. Um, it, it, it feels like writing this novel at that time is an incredible statement. Um, O'Brien, I mean, I don't even think saying that she humanizes people is, is really the right way of putting it. She she complicates and gives all of the ins and outs of all of these people on every possible side uh, of the divide. She devotes an, an incredible amount of time um, getting into the guardsmen and making them feel like, in, in a matter of pages, these really rich characters with their their own desires, their own feelings, their their feelings of admiration towards the um, IRA or revulsion or what have you. Um, yeah, it's 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 a lot. She she does she does a lot with and yeah. I I, I there's a quote on the back of my edition from um, um, John Larue and their the review from New York Times Book Review that ends with "This is a brave book" and. I certainly think that's the case, but it's also just a truly, I mean, I, I am certainly one that feels that uh, fiction is one of the best ways for us to understand a time or a place to really get into all the, the nuance uh, of a setting. And um, yeah, I certainly think that um, this this is accomplishing that. Well, to your point, she's a brave writer. She was pretty much made persona non grata for her first novel, The Country Girls, um, and the books that followed, because it addresses abortion, mm -hmm. um, you know, as an Irish writer, um, writing in the 50s and 60s, you know, talking about abortion, that was, um, you know, that was something that was not, um, was not 
looked upon kindly by the Catholic Church, and she got a lot of heat for that. Um, and I think that's perhaps I don't want to make stories up, but perhaps that's part of the reason why she doesn't live there. Um, mm-hmm. She she left Ireland, um, and um, so yeah. Well, I'm just I'm just really happy that you like this story, and hopefully, some of our listeners will go out and grab this novel. It's it's not so easy to find anymore. Sadly. Yeah, it was- it's that's an, that's an, another interesting point. Um, it is still in print. Uh, it was I don't believe terribly. I ordered it through um, a local store, Exile in Bookville. Um, I don't believe when I because they let me behind the counter. Um, I checked uh, the main distributor. I don't believe it was available there. It was available through the publisher. Um, it's it's kind of strange to me that it isn't a little bit more out there. And I'd be curious. Maybe this is something that folks could, you know, chime in about. What stores are actually carrying it as part of their backlist? I mean, this is another one I think, um, as is rather the point of what we're doing, that you really do need someone in the store that wants to champion it, that wants to to put it forward and put it into the right customer's hands. Um, so I, I can't. But at the same time, there is so much richness to this, um, and it's by such a clearly important writer, um, that I'm a little surprised it, it wouldn't be on more shelves or at least more widely available. Yeah. I mean, I think that you're likely to find on the shelves, um, her more recent books, um, the red chairs, which deals with Serbian war crimes and then girls, which is really, um, amazing departure for her. Um, she went to Africa to research Boko Haram and uh, the girls is about um, the, the kidnapping of um, girls from the school um, and, you know, the, the horror of that. And so, uh, yeah, I think that she was already like 88 perhaps when she traveled to Nigeria and like investigated that and, and did the research for the book. So um those books are, are quite worth your while too, but of the backlist, the country girls and this one um, are my favorites. And, but she's written so much. Um, it's not surprising to me that stores wouldn't think that they should, could carry, you know, every single of her, you know, 22 novels or so. But um, I think this one is well worth uh, a space on everyone's shelf. Um, I feel like we're kind of, drawing to the end of the conversation. So I was going to ask you what, you know, in the interest of what books do you think resonate with this one? Like what, what would be the connect, like the, the books you would connect it up to that you would, that would maybe make you think a customer would be interested in someone else would be interested in reading this or that you would think would be the next one to do um, after it. Um, Well, I've added to um, for listeners um, information, and maybe we mentioned it in a previous episode. But Tom and I are kind of sharing backlist recommendations with each other, and and deciding, you know, um, taking turns reading what the other has recommended for each episode. And we've got a list going, and I think I've recently added this to my list, basically because of my revisit of this book. And it is a book that I mentioned at the top. Chronicle of the Murdered House. It Mm. really reminds me of that, which is this uh, just murky, gothic, um, kind of um, 
soil and house haunted book that um that the the language is is a bit um similar in so far as the 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 story is told kind of in this uh, kind of uh, hazy way that you're sometimes questioning, is it real? Is it a dream? Is this happening now? Is she remembering the past? What's the time frame here? Um, but that's a book about family and and curses and incest. And it's it's so much fun. I love that book. So that's the one that comes to mind for me. Yeah, I was thinking, um, I actually haven't, I have that. Uh, I have not read it. Um, I think its size threw me off at the time because it's a, it's a bit of a beefy guy. Um, but um, Galore by Michael Crummy, which I think I actually put onto the list of suggestions to you. Um, I don't think stylistically it's that similar. Although when you brought up sort of the Faulknerian elements, um, it kind of made a little more sense. Frankly, I think it would, if you were to combine John Crow's Devil and House of Splendid Isolation, you might get something like Galore. Um, takes place in um, Newfoundland from the late or yeah, late-ish beginning of the uh, 19th century into the beginning of the 20th century. Um, this small village, you're basically tracking, uh, in some ways, uh, Canada's modernization, but you're also very specifically following these families and parts of the family do become hauntings and part of the land. Um, everyone, I mean, yeah, everyone has the same name. So initially you have absolutely no idea who's being discussed when, um, but it has a lot of the same echoes of um, lived inness and um, the way the, the way the land almost, you know, kind of takes things back and uh, causes folks to change uh, along with it as much as the people are changing the land itself. Um, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite books, but it's definitely one that I think would, would work well for folks who, who dug into this one. Okay. Well, I'm totally tempted now. So stay tuned. I'm sure we'll be talking about that one in an upcoming episode. Excellent. So, Lori, um, this week we are talking about uh, Heart So White and Tomorrow on the Battle Think on Me. But uh, before we launch into that discussion, a, a quick programming note. Um, up on our Substack is something of an episode guide of the Maria's titles we'll be talking about each episode. And in previous episodes, we pretty much said that Your Face Tomorrow is something that we are building up to sooner than later. Um, we decided to change things up because... Well, it's our podcast, and we decide we want to change. We changed our up. mind. Yeah, um, which is fine. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially with uh, the way Marius writes and how he changes characters' eye color at different points and all those things. I, I think we can change things however we want. Um, so, uh, next episode, we will actually be talking about uh, Berta Isla. The ep- full episode will be about Berta Isla. Um, and then the following episode will be on the new novel, uh, Tomas Nevinson. 
Um, that is in no small part because that episode will go up the week after uh, Tomas Nevinson publishes, and we felt that uh, it'd be best to kind of talk about it at the uh, at the same time, um, or as close to pub date as possible. Yeah, we sh- um, so that is we should we should probably explain that the two the two titles are are related. Um, Thomas Nevinson, of course, the forthcoming book uh, here in the United States is what sadly we think is going to be our last um, our last book by Javier Moraes, uh, the last one that he completed before he died. Um, and Thomas Nevinson is the, is the name of the male protagonist in the Berta Isla and the Thomas Nevinson partnership. Um, and Bert, of course, is his wife. And so it's a little bit of a he said, she said perspective, totally riveting and fantastic. So nobody's going to miss anything uh, that we're bumping these up. In fact, I'm really excited to talk about both of them. Well, and I'm also really excited that, uh, yeah, that we actually get to uh, take a look at, or at least I believe you already have taken a look at um, Tomas Nevinson, but um, that I'll get to see it a little bit before pub date. Um, one of the perks of uh, being a bookseller is you often see books in advance and no longer being an official, or at least a, a steadily uh, employed bookseller, that, that's a little bit harder to come by these days for me. So this is a, a welcome welcome blast uh, from the past. So um, yeah, so that that is the programming note. Um, but today we are, as I said, going into uh, A Heart So White and Tomorrow on the Battle Think on Me. Um, this was intentional, especially. Uh, pairing these two books together, much like we paired uh, All Souls and Dark Back of Time. But um, I think we're doing a really great job of uh, twinning uh, Marius's titles. Uh, these books are very much in conversation with one another um, in ways that I think, I mean, even more, even more so than they would have been in conversation with All Souls or The Man of Feeling or really a lot of his other books. Um, they're also very, very different books in terms of tone. Uh, which is something that in an email exchange you pointed out, Lori, that uh, you found tomorrow in the battle to have some of the funniest moments you've read in Marius's work. So why don't yeah, you speak to that? Yeah, it's true. Um, the, the two books were were written um, pretty close together, uh, 1992 and 1994, um, in Spanish, of course, um, translated and published here much later. But um, yeah, tomorrow in the battle, think on me. Um, I mean, it's not all giggles and laughs, but there is, um, a character in the, the book. Uh, he's a government official and he's a rather pompous, uh, self-important man. Um, and his staff refers to him as the only one or the solo, um, they have all these kinds of nicknames for him. And I think colloquially people that know of him kind of refer to him that way as well. Um, and, you know, I, I could definitely feel Moraes kind of like poking fun at this guy. There is um, there's some discussion in the in the novel about the weird way that he eats his um his, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, his, uh, his assistant, uh, an old uh, guy that kind of um, almost like a butler to the, to the, the government official, um, tells uh, the main character, Victor, 
and um and his companion when they're waiting to meet with the only one that uh the official engages in something called fletcherizing where he's very uh, methodical about the number of times that he chews a morsel of food um and just like the way he he describes it, I don't know. I laughed out loud, and that doesn't happen to me very often when I'm reading Marais. <laughs> um, actually, your point about not knowing wh- quite what to call um, this assistant to um, also another nickname is the Lone Ranger that uh, Maria em- em- employs, or Victor rather, the the narrator employs. Um, but yeah, the the assistant. It, is referred to as a steward or seneschal and Victor himself is, I am not versed in the different names of the various <laughs> posts. So like there's an ambiguity even with, for the person in the scene as to what, what to refer to this person who then goes into some detail about how this person goes about chewing up their food. Um, I do remember when I first read this, uh, have you ever seen the movie um, Bugsy with um, yeah, Warren Beatty? Oh my goodness. Yeah, Warren Beatty. Uh, there, in early on the movie, he's at dinner with his family, and he goes like goes to some length, uh, telling his daughter about how many times she needs to chew her food and how healthy that is. And throughout the movie, as you when you see him eat something, Warren Beatty literally sits there and like chews for like twenty seconds uh, as if he's actually doing it. So that was what came to my mind, and it made me chuckle back when I first read it, and made me chuckle again on this on the. I'll do you reading. one better. Um, I actually have a in-law that does this and it is the most oh pain saking thing to eat a meal with this person because <laughs> he i mean we're like you know finishing the meal and he's barely gotten started but anyway that's an aside but i've never heard him say you know describe what he does as fletcherizing but it's about the same thing yeah yeah it's 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 a really amazing scene um it also just does such a remarkable job of like kind of tearing into notions of identity of presentation to the world um which is made even funnier the lone ranger doesn't really have a very good idea of how to present himself to the world at all it seems uh despite occupying this incredible place of power and privilege and i mean victor is there to ghost write a speech um, so he's trying to get a sense of what is it the person wants to get across. And the guy talks crossways in so many different moments and different ways about what it is he wants to express and all that. But to have that up against this very mechanical notion of how to eat and how to like exist as a person and make digestion better, but then to have really no idea of how to talk about yourself. I mean, that's, that's a very, I don't know, it, it really created an, a, a quite memorable character that's, I don't know, like, bar- like in some ways, bar- like very, very much barely in the novel, just in this yeah, one scene. Yeah, he, he is. So. He, ultimately, he's kind of a, a novel of not much, or a, a character of not much importance, except that for the purposes of the novel, he introduces um, the main character, Victor, to this other family that we'll have to get into when we talk about the premise of the novel that's very important for the novel but um but yeah it is so interesting because he wants to be someone historical someone this is the government official someone who's remembered but he can't help but know that 
his speeches are incredibly boring and meaningless and people fall asleep during them. So he's really trying to look for um, someone to write for him that will help him create an identity um, that will be, that will be memorable and respected. And, and that's, um, that's a really interesting part of the book, especially when we get into the fact that, that Victor's a ghostwriter and the conspiracy that he has with this friend of his that um, is kind of a playboy and is the purported ghostwriter, but he's really not ready for prime time in terms of of dealing with important people. So Victor's kind of placed in front of him um, to be like the, the presentable one and to be the true ghostwriter. Yeah. And I mean, on that point of telling a story about oneself in order to be remembered, I mean, this is something that we've touched on before, but I think Maria's would be Maria's as a writer would be deeply, deeply distrustful of this ability to actually control a story. Um, even not even once you're gone, once it's out in the world, the story changes, it alters. Um, this is a recurring motif of made very explicit in your face tomorrow when we get to that. But uh, it recurs throughout this book and is really kind of in some ways the the heart of uh, a heart so white is what is known, how things fade, how that changes. But you know, what is the reality behind that story? Does that ever have to reemerge, um, become part of it. Um, I'm looking for a specific line, but not I'm about 30 pages on or so from his interaction with uh, the Lone Ranger. Uh, he has a line about how uh, stories do not belong only to those who are present or to those who invent them. Once a story has been told, it's anyone's. It becomes common currency. It gets twisted and distorted. No story is told the same way twice or in quite the same words. Not even even if the same person tells the story twice. Not even if there's only ever one storyteller. And there are multiple further clauses along that because, of course, this is a sentence written by Marius. But that's kind of kind of the thrust of it. So I guess um, we should probably uh, let our listeners know, in the event that they haven't read this, kind of what this book is is about. Um, Victor's the the main character, and he uh, kind of has a date with a married woman, and um, sh- he met her like at a a cocktail reception, um, and they went for coffee uh, a couple days later. And then they decided to go for dinner uh, on a night that her husband, her name is Marta, um, is out of town traveling for business in London. And um, and Marta says at the last minute that she can't find a babysitter. And so would Victor please come to to her home and have dinner and she'll make dinner for them. And he does. And it's not really um, – clear to him at, at first, I think that they're going to have a sexual encounter. Um, but eventually the child goes to bed, um, and they head to the bed, to the bedroom and then something very unexpected happens. And I don't think it's a spoiler to kind of divulge that to you, Tom, because it happens pretty early on. No. Yeah, I, I also quickly would say that I think these two books in particular are ones where 
I don't think we need to hold back too much on what happens in them. I mean, I, I, they're much more about what we will spend a lot of time dancing around a lot of things. Otherwise, I think we can be pretty straightforward about the narrative. Um, it's really how Marius gets there that I think is so engaging, but yes. So, go ahead. um, so before they actually engage in intercourse, Marta just kind of quietly dies, um, in the bedroom with Victor. Um, and, Victor then is left with this predicament because what does he do? Um, The child is asleep in the next bedroom. Um, He doesn't really know this woman very well. He certainly doesn't feel comfortable with the fact that, you know, calling the police or calling an ambulance and like, what's he doing there? Because he's obviously in a, compromised position (laughs) in bed with her. Um, And so that kind of uh, launches us into this whole kind of, um, I guess, exploration of consequences and things happening. And then like you were describing a little bit later, kind of or earlier getting out of control somehow. And his life ends up getting tied in a bit to Marta's husband, Dion, because um, we learn that Dion also has a secret. Um, and they kind of come together through, uh, ironically, the Lone Ranger, um, because um, Marta's father... Um, knows the Lone Ranger very well, and he offers to introduce the Lone Ranger to this ghostwriter um, who happens to be Victor. And then Victor, shortly thereafter, is finds himself at lunch with Marta's, Marta's father and her husband, Dion, and her younger sister. Uh, and the younger sister name is Louisa. Uh, which is not the only time we're going to run into a Louisa in this conversation or across all of our conversations because a whole host of names in the world. And I think uh, uh, Marius was picking some very specific ones for some very specific reasons. Um, yeah. I mean, so it is a book about consequences, about uh, control. Um, again, going back to what the Lone Ranger wants in terms of controlling his, how he's remembered, what his place in history is. Um, Victor trying to control, I mean, trying to, at the outset, trying to control the circumstances that, you know, will surround the discovery of uh, Marta's death. Um, trying to control how he gets to know more and encounter more um, and feeling like he needs to explain something that there needs to be more said um it's int- i mean it almost had in some ways this is an oversimplification but in some ways it has a little bit of a feel of almost like a morality play right like it's just sort of like this one thing leads to another leads to another leads to another leads to a denouement that like doesn't really that complicates everything else that came before it and um doesn't really offer resolution other than the idea that life just continues onwards, that you just keep progressing. You keep, you keep things going. Um, I think that one thing that just hearing you talk right now that I didn't think of when I was 
preparing for this episode, but it is a recurring theme. Victor here almost is an example of someone who be, who's too curious because in a lot of ways, um, the thing to do once he gets away that night, of course, and, and it sees like, feels like no one knows that he was there would be just to like push it as far away from himself as possible and not become endangered of being implicated or found out. But he can't do that. <laughs> he just wants to dig deeper and deeper into it. And I feel like that's something that happens again and again with Moraes' protagonist is that um, there is kind of like a simple way out to avoid complicity or consequences. But their insatiable need to understand human nature and the motivations of others just kind of draws them in like us, you know, like a, a, a spider web that you're just kind of like sucked in and, um, and to, to the risk of your own um, innocence sometimes. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is this sense of once there is a secret, it needs a telling. It, 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 someone needs, is it a secret if it's held by one person? Uh, or does it become a secret once more than one person knows? Or, I mean, frankly, when something happens, it's in the world um, and therefore available to interpretation, to understanding, which is a very, <laughs> a very consequential and fun thing for someone like Marius, who also is a translator, to kind of grapple with. Uh, how, how do you phrase this? How do you frame it? And what changes along the way in the telling? Um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe we should get into a little bit of uh, the the last bit of the book, where um, the inevitable meeting between Victor and um, uh, Mara's husband uh, Dion uh, occurs. Um, so, I mean, finally they're face to face, and I think Victor kind of felt from the outset that he needed to he needed to give some context or some under explanation to Eduardo. Um, and I, it's always been a little unclear to me how much of that was a feeling of complicity in, despite the fact he had nothing to do with Mara's death, he was simply a witness to it. But the fact that he was about to engage in, you know, Mara's betrayal of her husband, um, and, and how much of it is like a certain degree of empathy that Mara didn't just die alone, which I mean, I think Dion was pretty clear on that front. Um, what emerges though, is that at the exact same time that Marta was participating, uh, in this betrayal, um, and Dion was away on business, he was doing the exact same thing that he was having an affair. Um, and in the midst of a, a fight with the woman on a bus in London with the woman, um, that he was with, um, in a fit of rage, he starts to strangle her. And then he stops and she, terrified, of course, runs off the bus and runs across the street and is hit by a cab and killed. And Dion stays on the bus, realizes that no one's going to know it was him. No one really knows that he was there with her. He can just ride away and pretend not to have had that happen. Um, and yet he is telling this story 
to the man who was with his wife the night that she died. Um, again, that events deserve or require a telling in order for them to maybe for them to even have occurred in the first place. Otherwise there are these ghostly ephemera, right? Um, yeah. I don't know. What, what did you take or how did you take the, that interaction, that, that well, whole scene? There is a very long buildup to it. Um, and a lot of suspense, but basically it's kind of Victor tells the truth to Louisa, Marta's younger sister and kind of asked Louisa, will you please tell Dion, you know, that, that I was there that night. And there was a part of me, and this is probably because I watched too much Agatha Christie, but I was like, <laughs> well, perhaps, you know, Eduardo Dion has been like slowly poisoning Marta or something. And he's perhaps a little bit responsible for, um, for her death, or he knew that she was fragile or something. Um, but it doesn't go down like that at all. It actually, as you said, ends up being that, um, Dion was much more complicit in a young woman's death, a lover's death than Victor ever was. And the reason that things go sour with Dion and his lover is because she lies to him that she's pregnant and they decide to go to London and get her an abortion. And she goes into the hospital alone to have the procedure and he's waiting in a coffee shop across the street. And for some reason decides to go into the hospital and he sees her in the, in the waiting room leafing through, you know, glossy magazines. And then the whole thing explodes that she, didn't have an abortion. She didn't need an abortion because she was never pregnant to begin with. And she just kind of felt the need to um, hold that over his head, you know, to kind of, I guess, prove his love or, you know, have his love proved to her or something like that. But yeah, it wasn't at all where I thought the story was going to go. Yeah. I mean, she's also interesting in terms of uh, the twinning of these two novels uh, as this this idea of proving proving your love, proving your devotion, um, and how that making that request of someone else leads to some pretty pretty horrific uh, occurrences. Uh, it runs throughout both books. Um, it's an interesting way as well as this conversation um, between Victor and Dion. Um, Really, I mean, it basically ends the novel. I mean, it's all been building to this point. Um, many of Marius's novels have almost a coda at the end where he's sort of wrapping things up. And, and there is a bit of one here, but usually it's a bit longer and a little bit more more introspective, or at least it it, it pulls in some other material. This one, um, Victor says he's leaving. Um, and then the very next paragraph is him considering um, that he's probably going to try and pursue a relationship with Louisa. Um, and that's it. Like, that's it. It opens with a woman's death. It ends with a conversation with her husband where he admits complicity in the death of another woman. And we're done. I mean, it's it's really strange that way. Um, I mean, it works. I mean, it's 
incredibly impressive. I'm not sure much more needed to be said at that moment. Um, but I, I just, I, I found that on this reread that just sort of jumped out at me as something a little bit different, a little bit, um, a little bit strange in a way for a Maria, for a Maria's novel. It's also um, kind of interesting that Eduardo uh, Dion feels this need to, to confess his own illicit love affair to Victor. I mean, because, but for, I guess, a need to tell someone his own secret and that person being Victor, I guess, um, you know, it could have been very much uh, an accusatory type of one-way conversation. You know, what the hell were you doing in bed with my wife? You know, what kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, what kind of adulterous asshole are you? You know, that kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting choice that he, I guess, feels the need to unburden himself. And I guess it is this, this theme of, you know, the secret and it's really not a secret if only one person has the knowledge. So at some point it's, there's almost this, compulsion to share the knowledge, whether you really, whether the person receiving the knowledge really wants it or not. Right. Absolutely. Um, it also, it's this really interesting consideration of, uh, happenstance, um, which really runs throughout Marius's work, um, there, but for the grace of God go I, you know, um, had they gone out to dinner that evening, um, uh, Marta and Victor, and she started to feel unwell in the restaurant. Would someone have been able to intervene or recognize symptoms? Um, had you know, had Dion been home, and so the meeting would never have been possible in the first place. Um, how different things would have been. All these sort of small choices that um, occur against the backdrop of major events: someone's death, um, you know, a lover's quarrel um, that leads to a death. Uh, I, I think, I think this is also part of what Marius is, is playing with. Um, I mean, I, I brought this up before, but like just the, even the circumstances that made his own birth possible, the fact that his mother went to the police station to get his father released. If she had not done that, he could have, you know, Julian Marius, that may have been the end of his story. So just these sort of small, these decisions and these moments that lead to all these explosive results, um, and occurrences, uh, which almost in some ways pushes back against that very notion of narrative. You know, l- life has a series of one off events that you can look at and talk about as a whole, but you could also look at them in a slightly different way and talk about them as a different kind of whole. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think you can also see how, as a 20 uh, something uh, young bookseller with, you know, not long removed from college with a philosophy and religion degree that this would be the sort of thing that like would absolutely fry my brain as I'm reading yeah, it. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. Maybe we should turn to A Heart So White because that novel as well involves the unexpected death of two young women. Yeah. And this is also a good moment to um, talk about some of the Shakespeare connections here um, as as laid out in the titles. Uh, another brilliant way that we twinned 
two books written by the same person. Um, Tomorrow on the Bell, Think on Me is a line from um, Richard III. Uh, and A Heart So White is uh, taken from Macbeth, um, specifically from Lady Macbeth's speech after the murder of uh, Duncan, if I'm remembering my I think that's Shakespeare right. correctly. And the Richard III one is a little bit more oblique to me. Um, and I've mentioned before, but I've also been using and referring to uh, a companion to Javier Marius by David K. Hertzberger, uh, this academic title as a way of, I mean, that's been incredibly useful for some more context around Marius and his writings, um, especially the ones that are only in Spanish, uh, but also just sort of getting some ideas a little bit straighter in my head, though I don't always agree with all of his conclusions, but that's probably the point of good academic you know, interaction, but uh, heart, but the specific moment that a heart so white refers to, like a, as a reference to Shakespeare, um, is after being told of uh, Duncan's death, um, Lady Macbeth thinks of how the blood of Duncan is on her hands, um, which seems strange to her when her heart is so white. Um, and one of the things that uh, Hertzberger actually pulled up which I would never have known otherwise um, is that Marius actually wrote a, um, an essay uh, about uh, this specific moment and in general, how he doesn't always feel like he got Shakespeare, that some of the ambiguities in there that he, I think in that sense, I don't think he her sort of writes it super clearly unless I'm just misunderstanding that the ambiguities and the uncertainties in Shakespeare leave Marius. He's happy to live in that space. He doesn't feel a need to come down on one interpretation or the other, um, which makes a hell of a lot of sense given how the man writes and what he writes about. Um, but this notion of, you know, her heart being white, is it because she's innocent? Is it because she doesn't actually have culpability because she was not the murderer, even though she encouraged the death? Um, which ties very directly into the action of A Heart So White. Yeah. Um, before we di dive too much further into it, I just want to say that A Heart So White is in many ways what put Marius um, on the map in the, um, the English-speaking world. Um, it won the Impact Dublin Award. It, uh, I mean, it just went completely ballistic when it was published um, and got out there and really established him as one of like the preeminent novelists uh, going. And perhaps um, um, for our U.S.-based listeners, um, might not be too familiar with the Dublin Award, but it is the uh, highest payout award for a novel. Um, it's an annual award. And um, yeah, I think, I think the, uh, the payout now is 100,000 pounds, which doesn't seem crazy when you think about like what sports figures make but for a literary award that's a lot that's a lot of money and the nomination process unless it's changed but um my understanding is it's uh through libraries and librarians around the world so it isn't even necessarily a i mean there is a bit of a jurying of it um but how the books get out there is almost from readers and very specific, like well-read and devoted readers at that. Um, also, at least when um, 
a heart so white one, uh, the payout gets split. If it's a work that's translated into English, the payout is split evenly, I think, between the translator and um, the uh, novelist, which is incredibly, un- like, frankly, just rather unusual. I mean, it also like, is a recognition of the translator as a writer uh, of the finished product, of the finished book, which I don't know, even five years ago, I feel like that would have been a controversial thing to say. I think we've made some serious progress in recognizing the importance of translators. Um, and I frankly think that's part of what made this pop even more when it won, was the unusual nature of the fact that like a translator also got paid so well. Um, okay. But uh, Hearts of White uh, is following a... I mean, he's, he goes unnamed for almost the entire book to the extent that I can never remember his name. All I know is that he's, despite some, <laughs> despite some similarities with the protagonist of all souls and um, in the future, your face tomorrow. Uh, it's not the same person though. It almost could be. Um, I think I made the claim in the last episode that you could almost swap the protagonist in and out of uh, <laughs> Maria's novels and it would work pretty well. And I think this is another instance of that. Um, anyway, our narrator um, has just been married to a woman named uh, Louisa. Uh, he's feeling at the outset and kind of throughout some, maybe not quite ambivalence, but he's trying to understand how he feels about being married and, and how he feels about his wife in this, this register of a relationship. Um, and as the novel progresses, it comes comes out that his father, his his mother has passed, um, but his father makes a comment to him towards the end of the reception after the wedding. Um, I'm skipping a few important things that we'll get back to, but his father makes a uh, statement that if he has any secrets that he has not told Louisa, that he should just hold on to them himself, which is, as we'll find, a very specific and probably to his father, um, Ron's, uh, Ron's mind, really good advice, but it's also 100% a dare. Like you've just put the thought of holding, of withholding into someone's head, which again, is it a secret if only you know it, you know, like, is it, and doesn't a secret require a telling? Um, and throughout the novel, he discovers, more and more about his father's life. Uh, he's always known that his mother um, was his father, that his father had been married to his mother's older sister before she died. Um, but it slowly comes out that he was actually married before that as well. Um, the novel actually opens with um, his aunt's death. Uh, she commits suicide by uh, firing a gu- her father's gun into her, uh, into her chest. And the way that there are some incredibly humorous moments um, in tomorrow on the battle. Think on me. There's less of that in a heart. So white. I do want to point out though, that in this opening scene, um, she kills herself while um, at lunch with her family and her father is there. And when he enters the bathroom, he still has food in his mouth and he keeps switching it side to side, to side, to side, unsure what to do with it. Unsure whether to spit it out or to swallow or what have you. And in a different circumstance, this would be much like the Fletcherizing, absolutely hysterical. Um, so I mean, I think there's an, an, an absurdity 
there's an absurdity to everyday life that I think Maria's picks on up on really well that depending upon sort of the uh the English you put on the situation is either really funny or just like bleak in its in its comedy. Um but yeah, so she she kills herself. Um he finds slowly finds out more about who she was um to a degree or who her who his father was. Um finds out that his father was married previously and some of this discovery takes place in front of his wife, Louisa. And as the novel progresses, we get to, there are a few other elements we're very much going to spend some time on, but as the novel progresses, we get to, you know, something of the final conversation between Louisa, um, Ron's the father with our narrator, accidentally hidden away another room overhearing the entire conversation and discovering what happened to his father's first wife and how that directly in many ways led to the death of his aunt, his father's second wife. Um, God, this is so it good. Is. Lori, like it is so well plotted. I wanted it's amazing. to, um, to um, kind of point to the fact, and by the way, the protagonist's name is Juan. And really the only reason I right. know this is because it says it on the back of my copy because you're right it he remains pretty much um unnamed but um what were you gonna say i was gonna say yeah no it's back in my copy too but i'm pretty sure in 20 minutes when we're done with this conversation um his voice is gonna take for over sure, as his name sure. in my head but you know? um one's ambivalence about being married um i think is in large part because he's waited quite a while to get married. He's been single Mm -hmm. for a while. And I don't, I don't get the sense necessarily that he's, you know, like, uh, uh, a womanizer or anything like that, but he's just lived, you know, as a bachelor for a long time. And so he's got mixed feelings about getting married. And, um, the opening scene that you talked about, um, happens, it's actually a luncheon to celebrate Ron's marriage um, to, uh, to Juan's aunt. Um, and, and so that's a very, very drastic thing to happen, you know, at an occasion when no one should have been more happy than the bride, presumably. Um, but she's in the Mm -hmm. bathroom blowing her head off, um, with a gun. So, (laughs) um, that sets up like the story in an interesting way, but it's also interesting. I think that, Juan's wife, Louisa, in some ways is that curious person um, that I talked about in Tomorrow in the Battle, Think on Me, because um, she's kind of the one that keeps saying to Juan, well, don't you, don't you want to know more about, you know, your dad's life and your aunt and how she died and, and why she died? And, and she kind of just keeps at this. And so she, in some ways, sets up this situation where she's going to be the conduit for Juan to find out about his father's backstory, which I found kind of interesting as well. And again, as you mentioned, we already have another, another Louisa. We'll have many more before we get to the summer, um, and our final discussions of the work of Marais. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of repetition in the names, as well as we've got Alberta in this novel, 
And as we discussed at the front of the program, uh, we will be talking um, in our next episode about um, about a book named After Alberta. So um, another name as well. Yeah, I mean, it's also it's interesting as well in that I mean, Victor in uh, Tomorrow um, is divorced, um, and there's an interesting scene where with frankly him he does not have a relationship any longer with his ex uh celia um and at one point is sort of convinced or at least unsure if she's engaging in prostitution and picks up a prostitute that he thinks could be her but even after the interaction he's not totally sure if it was or not um which again going to like presentation identity all these things but maria's is protagonists, the ones that are married or the ones that are in relationships don't have very stable relationships. Um, or at least they don't, they seem not to last. Uh, and in some ways I think that's almost a reflection on, it's an ambivalence about institutions maybe, but it's also I think ambivalence about like how you change over time and how that change is reflected in your relationship, whether or not you're the same person after five years that got married to that person, whether they're the same person and, and how, how you frankly deal with that. Um, I think in terms of the face to the world, which is something that we've talked about in, in our emails in, in preparation for some, some of these episodes and also in just as far as these hidden stories and who people choose to tell or not tell, um, their secrets to, um, I think that really plays a, a role in in Marius's work overall. His his larger, you know, keep saying the word is going to become a dirty word eventually. His larger project, as it were, um, in it's these also, novels. It's also though. I think like you know, the face that you'll have tomorrow might not be the same as the face that you have today. Um, and of course, um, we'll be rounding out and closing our Marais episodes with his, what you and I both think is his masterwork, the three volume uh, uh, fiction called Your Face Tomorrow. But it's, it's kind of a recognition or trying to figure out like when the going gets tough or when the screws are tight, like what kind of person will you end up really being? And, and I think mm-hmm. that we really find that out or, I guess Louisa and Juan find that out about Juan's father, Rance, because um, he turns out to have not been a very nice guy um, in his early life, and um, and the the crime he committed actually is something that um, you could well understand why would have should have been perhaps a secret, you know, that he took to his grave and, and what he was kind of warning Juan about in that, um, in that private discussion that they have right after the wedding ceremony to, you know, if you've got a secret, keep it to yourself. Right. Just debating whether I do want to go ahead and go into more of the actual, what do you think? Should we talk about what the secret is um, sp- explicitly, or or leave that to for folks who have? I haven't? feel like that's a morsel that we can probably leave to the side. Um, I, I, okay. I think maybe 
just insofar as to say that it explains why the young bride shot herself. Yes. And it again ties ties back into complicity. And Ron um, totally doesn't take his own advice. You know, he, he tells he tells yeah. Juan, you know, if you've got a secret, keep it to yourself. And he ends up divulging the secret to Louisa. Ron's does, but really Ron's knows from firsthand experience that telling your wife a secret can be very, very dangerous. Right. Uh, he does say at the end of their conversation that uh, Louisa asks him whether or not she should tell Juan. And Ron's response is, um, I would actually like you to not tell me what you decide. That is up to you. I don't want to know. Which in some ways is passing the secret along. It's almost as if he has unburdened himself of it, leaving it to someone else to decide whether or not that secret needs to be to be passed along, to be made present to to others. But Louisa doesn't um, have to make that decision because she knows that Juan's no, in the and, adjoining bedroom. And here's the question. Does Ron also have a suspicion of that? I don't I don't think so. No, I, I mean, it's hard, right? Because the way that he's talking, it almost feels like how he would have said it to his son. If his son were the one pushing, if he were willing to actually tell him what took place. And there's also a way in which throughout the novel, there are a number of interactions with Ron's and um, some some quasi flashbacks to him earlier in his life. Um, I never got Ron's feels old by the end of that conversation in a way that he hadn't to that point. Um, It's as if he's aging um, before our eyes and that is something also really, I mean, I mean, A, it's a remarkable feat of writing, but it, in a way it was as if uh, this private part of his life, this deepest secret that he possessed, um, the secret that took away the person that he loved most in the world, um, that once that was unburdened, um, he lost some of his vigor. He lost some, he, he lost the story that animated his life in some ways because it's no longer his. Yeah, that's it's a really good world. point because up until that point, um, Juan is always uh, thinking or remarking on how well put together his dad is. You know, he's always impeccably dressed. Mm-hmm. He's very, pr- uh, his father's very proud of his appearance. Um, you know, he's he's forever the gentleman. He's kind of an athlete. He's he's um, a collector of art and um, has very fine taste in food and whiskey and wine. And so, yeah, he's very much someone that that is looked up to by his community and someone that has always seemed as having, you know, having it together and being a very mm-hmm. kind of well well put together and well presenting person. And then you kind of see this story and as he's telling it, it's like, it's, it's, it's draining him. It's draining him physically and mentally. Um, and, and yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's, it's quite masterful the way that um, Lareus is able to depict that. As far as some of the characters, this is a book in which, this is one of the books in which a lot of, Marius's other work starts 
you can see where intersections are emerging. Uh, there's a character we're introduced to through um, Ron's, uh, or Ron's work anyways, Custardoy uh, the Younger, who will later appear in uh, Your Face Tomorrow. Um, I made a comment to you at one point that I almost feel like Marius's novels are uh, not quite a shared universe, you know, if you want to use that sort of superhero movie or comic, basically it comes from the comics. Um, not so much a shared universe, but um, universes abutting one another, uh, intersecting at different points. Well, this one is very firmly um, situated with All Souls, um, Your Face Tomorrow, etc., um, which is just which is fun and i think frankly it's fun for marius as well like it's just sort it's a little bit of a a little bit of a game that he's playing in some respects not in a big metafictional sort of way but just just you know a, a lot of his characters are kind of exploring similar themes he's exploring similar themes across his novels so it kind of makes sense that they would um in some ways be maybe one or two social connections away from one another or actually in their long lives actually have known one another yeah, at different it, points. In some ways it reminds me of that Seinfeld episode. Do you remember the one where like there's the bizarro Jerry and the bizarro Kramer and the bizarro mm-hmm. George? Because yeah. for I mean, not in a comic way like that is, but for instance, like um the Berta in A Heart So White, um has a very distinctive limp. She's crippled. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't recall uh, Berta in the novel Berta Isla being being crippled or having a limp unless I'm wrong. Um, I I don't remember I don't remember either, but that is what I'm reading next. So me we, too. Can, we can speak <laughs> to that. We can speak to that in the next episode. Um, but this Berta is um, was married is having something of a frustrated life, which is not unlike our other Berta. Um, yeah, I think uh, a, it'll be really. I think a lot yeah, of women. I, I don't want to speak for all women, for God's sakes, but um, Berta's a little difficult to understand. Her kind of again, I guess you would say curiosity for hooking up with this like very creepy. Uh, guy, not Juan, um, but Juan and her are are former, I think, briefly lovers, but they're no longer. They're just friends now. Um, but uh, yeah, this guy is is demeaning and crude, and and yet she still wants to like go out on a date with him and and kind of have a, a romance with him and it it's a little hard to understand i think yeah at one point Juan actually somewhat puts that to her and her response is something along the lines of i don't know but i feel like this guy might have what i need and not necessarily saying like he's the right guy or he's a good guy but what he's offering right now is what i want right now which in some ways cuts back to Juan's own ambivalence or uncertainty around marriage. Um, but I guess that's what I guess I mean, that's what I think is so hard to understand. Like, how could the guy is just bad for her in every way? I mean, she's she's got to be like concerned about her safety. Um, he says really nasty things about her and her limp, and um, 
yeah, I just it I don't know. It it's hard it's hard to understand um that attraction or that compulsion to wanting to be with someone that seems cruel. I mean, it's certainly not an attraction or compulsion I share, <laughs> which is probably good. Very <laughs> good. Good 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 from my perspective. Um but this also, I mean, so it's also interesting that, um, again, in terms of twinning, um, Berta is a translator and, um, as is Juan, and that is also how he meets, uh, Luisa. Um, so in terms of twinning, we're also talking about, um, Victor, who's a ghostwriter and is translating other people's words to then to create a narrative that they present to the world as their own words. Um, Juan and Luisa, uh, I mean, their flirtation hit its peak when um, they were part of a meeting between two high-ranking, and it's clearly implied that it's the Prime Minister of England, the, the Prime Minister President of Spain, and they're providing live translation with Juan leading the translation and Luisa there to kind of be the check, to make sure he doesn't go off script, to make sure that it's put as clearly as possible. So again, these are people who are taking other people's narratives and then um, presenting them and presenting the world as if that's what the person said. And there's actually a really, I thought, really great moment. Um, that is a that is a a, um, a humorous part, that scene, because we were talking yes. about how funny parts of tomorrow uh, in the battle Think On Me is, and we didn't find a heart so white um, all that funny, but the the part where they kind of um, meet Juan and Luisa as they're both interpreting for this um, this high level um, kind of conference between between two two uh, two high ranking officials is really funny because they're making it up, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's also a kind of a sweet scene because as it so. I, I, What's all, just a really quick note, what was interesting, especially in terms of how things are adjusted um, as they're spoken, um, the Spanish politician wants to smoke. So he takes out his um, cigarettes and says, listen, do you mind if I smoke? I hurriedly translate his words. Do you mind if I smoke, madam? I said, which are two completely different. For, I mean, those are different sentiments, but he's now rephrased it in a way that's far more polite, far, and that continues throughout. And then- one starts, it's like a very boring meeting, very banal. They're not really saying anything. And then one starts changing what's being said. Um, and it happens specifically where he goes, he's, would you like me to order some, you some tea? He said, the he there being the smashed politician. And I didn't translate. I mean that the English I put into his mouth was not his polite question, which it must be recognized was as trite as it was tardy. And a really quick aside, I feel like like much like the scene in All Souls, um, the dinner table scene, I really feel like Marius has a great time skewering those in positions of authority, those with power. Those are the ones that he makes the funniest and the most absurd, which is probably to his credit as a person. Um, but this other question, tell me, do the people in your country love you? And from there, it goes off in some truly wild directions. Um, it turns into this conversation about what does it mean to be loved? What do, what do votes mean? How does that feel? And these two politicians actually starting to like 
engage on something like, is it the most meaningful thing in the world? No, but meaningful to them, actually giving them personalities. Like there's almost a, it's almost tender in a way. Um, and such a wild redirect from what would have otherwise been a bunch of pleasantries. Yeah, it is really, Um, it is really clever. And they end up talking about like the, the pros and cons of like being, being loved by your electorate and, you know, kind of, um, you know, sometimes the people love you, sometimes the people hate you and there's pros and cons to each. And it, it does, it does turn out to be kind of a, a heartfelt discussion about the, um, the burdens of, of power and, and leadership and holding high office. But yeah, it, it starts out being anything but something that has substance, but thanks to the interpreters, <laughs> it does become something that has substance. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's a really wild moment. Um, it also gives a sense of, I don't know, Juan's mischievous nature. I mean, that I don't think all of Marius's characters have, and I'm not sure Juan really presents this anywhere else throughout the novel, but yeah, it was, it's fun. It's one, it's certainly a scene that sticks with you and, and very much stands out. Um, in a, a re-remembering of the novel. I think once again, we're t- also dealing with a novel about circum, like about consequence and happenstance. Um, what leads to the death of Ron's first wife is his meeting Teresa, Juan's aunt. Um, had he not met her the way, when he did, things would have gone differently. Had he married his first wife, uh, he married a Cuban woman, but they got married at the Spanish sem- uh, Spanish embassy in a Spanish ceremony. And at the time, Spain did not allow for divorce. Um, and Ron's even kind of muses that that was probably his wife and her mother's uh, plan was to make sure that he was locked in. Um, had they simply gotten married in a Cuban ceremony where divorce was possible, what happened next wouldn't necessarily have, uh, have occurred. Um, yeah, it's just, again, these little little decisions that lead to very impactful moments and then how those moments carry forward. I also think that tomorrow in the battle is in, it is very much in some ways a haunted story. Um, Victor is haunted by uh, Marta's death. Um, I believe I said in our uh, episode on all souls that I very, I very much feel like this is, this is a ghost story in some respects, if the ghosts are floating around. And I think you could probably apply that to, or at least a version of what a haunting or a ghost story can be to most of Marius's work. Um, you know, the, the ghost of who you once were and the decisions you made and the ramifications, the ghost of the people that uh, have been a part of your life, whether they're alive or dead, still a part of your life or not. Um, yeah, there are hauntings throughout these novels, um, and very much in, in some ways that the, an argument that the past is never actually past. Yes. And I think that, um, it's, it's almost, in, in some ways it's almost a double entendre that Victor's a ghostwriter because, um, yep. you know, that's what we call people that, you know, write in the name of someone else, but it's also, you know, this idea of, of having these 
these secrets and these memories that, um, that just don't die, that just keep resurfacing. Mm-hmm. And both Louisa and Juan and Berta in some respects are, are ghosts in their own profession. You know, they're, they are, they are much like, much like Louisa is the conduit. They're the, con- they're conduits in terms of what they, what they are doing, what they are sharing and what they are getting across. Um, and as we'll see in subsequent works, that becomes even more pronounced and even more of a, of a motif, um, in his yeah, these work. are, these are some of my favorite Marais novels. Um, I mean, I don't know, maybe at the, maybe at the conclusion of our, um, Marais segment, um, this summer, we, we maybe should try to go through the exercise of each ranking our favorites. Um, oh, but, um, yeah, there's, these two novels are just so enjoyable. Um, I actually selected a heart so white for our in-store book club and I wasn't quite sure how it was going to go. Um, a few years earlier than that, I, I also, uh, recommended, um, the infatuations, which is also a Marais title that we'll be talking about later on. But um, in both instances, everyone, you know, everyone loved them. And um, I think it says a lot that this author can, can pull you into these complex psychological novels that really are not um, plot-driven um, in a lot of ways. Right. But that the, deten- the attention is, is still sustained in a deep way because you are so caught up in the psychologies of the characters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and on the, uh, in-store book club note, uh, that is a incredibly stressful thing to do to choose what, which book is going to be. It is very easy to kill, uh, an in-store book club. Uh, I very successfully killed one at 57th street books, uh, almost, yeah, like eight. Do you want to divulge ago. the title? Um, oh yeah, no, that was that was uh, it was Europe Central uh, by Woolman. That's a um, that's a tough book. That was, it's a tough book. It's a long book. Um, the book club was already hanging on by a thread, and man, I cut that thread. Uh, <laughs> no one came to that one, and no one was interested in doing a book club for quite some time after that. So, yeah, it's. It's it's a little bit more stressful than you think deciding what book people are going to read and then show up to a public space and, and talk about. So, well, it was great. Uh, it was great talking about these two novels with you, Tom. And I can't I can't wait to our next episode with Berta. Yes, it'll be very. I'm very excited. Um, we're moving into a, a different part of Marius's career when we get to uh, Berta Isla and then Tomas Evanson. Um, but uh, they are still very much part of a piece with his other books and um, it'll be actually be fun to talk a little bit about, I think some of the differences between um, Berta and a heart. So white tomorrow, all souls, et cetera. Um, so. All right. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Lori.